As we uh, get into week three of our uh, series on the gospel family, uh, we're going to kind of springboard off of last week's sermon uh, dealing with the image of God and how the pinnacle of marriage is God's glory, uh, the foundation of marriage being God's design we studied in week one. And uh, because he's sovereignly designed marriage, he has the right to determine what it looks like, how long it goes for, etc., etc. But uh, beyond the foundation at its highest point, at its epitome, at uh, at its standard is God's glory. And so we're going to, I know last week I said we'd look at wives and the more I studied, the more I realized we're just not there yet. (laughs) We, We need more groundwork laid before we get into the how do's, we get into the what of marriage. And, um, and so tonight, we do a bit more of a topical study, not so much using the scriptures as the scaffolding by which the uh, Bible study is laid or the outline of it tonight. Um, but uh, in the words of Walt Kaiser, I am, I am as a pastor allowed to preach one topical sermon a year as long as I repent immediately afterwards. So... I will do that. It's a joke, you guys. Come on, seriously. Um, you know, and so uh, in looking at Genesis 2 last week and looking at uh, God's high standard and that he created man and woman in his image, we also saw that marriage itself was created in God's image. And, um, and then as we get into Ephesians 5 in the weeks to come and Colossians chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 2, Titus chapter 2, um, we're going to take our time uh, dealing and pulling apart slowly those scriptures and the details of those passages. So, um, you know, there's, there's uh, no secret uh, for us today that there's enough circulating in the media to cause Christians to be discouraged about the future of marriage and the future of family. There was an article in the Atlanta newspaper recently entitled, All the Single Ladies, uh, kind of a playoff of Beyonce's song, uh, where Kate Bullock suggests that we stop thinking about traditional marriage as society's highest ideal. And, uh, and that's just where the world is going, uh, that we would no longer think about uh, marriage as one of God's pinnacles of creation, the capstone that would reflect his glory as we looked last week. Um, you know, divorce is no longer... Uh, the new normal. It's just normal for us. And many of you in this room have been affected by it. Uh, Back in the 1980s and 90s, the term turnkey kids was meant to represent uh, some sad reality for children. But now in 2012, it's just a regularity that uh, most of the kids in our community are turnkey kids going from home to home, uh, being swapped around from uh, dad's girlfriend, mom's boyfriend, and those new relationships and the homes that they're dwelling in. And uh, it's just, uh, it's away from the scriptural standard that we've looked at the last few weeks. So because of these developments, evangelicals have become very family-centered for our own sake uh, and for the sake of our neighbors. We've gone to events such as Promise Keepers, where men are taught to love their wives and they get the bumper sticker given to them by the sorority girl in the short shirt. This is a, just a personal experience um, at a Promise Keeper event. So now, every time I see someone driving along with an I love my wife bumper sticker, I say, no, you don't. You wouldn't have taken that bumper sticker. But 
All of that aside, we do have these events where men are challenged uh, to love their wives. John Piper and Wayne Grudem co-authored a book uh, called Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, where uh, they argue for a complementarian understanding of the home and the local church. Uh, we have a huge ministry in our country, and, and some of us can appreciate it, um, but it's called Focus on the Family. And uh, we're going to look today how actually that phrase, focus on the family, might not be such a good thing, actually. And uh, we'll look at that uh, tonight. Um, all of these different responses of these broken homes, the divorce rate increasing, it being the highest in the Bible belt itself, the turnkey kids becoming more and more, uh, there's a danger for overcorrection. Um, and so we don't, not necessarily, we're not afraid of being too conservative or too, too traditional, but uh, sometimes we adopt uh, standards and societal norms, as one man put it, that are just not biblical. And we want to be biblical uh, in this series. Uh, one of my resources in studying this has been Art Azurdia's recent series. He's taught up in Portland, really been enjoying it. And he spoke in his sermon uh, about his first pastorate position. Uh, and he took over uh, for a pastor who, a great man, he said, awesome guy, and uh, for the Sunday school, for a whole year, this pastor focused on the family. It was exclusively on family life. Now, Art noted that three things were obvious in the people that attended this year-long Bible study on the family. Number one, that most of these couples were not involved in the life of the church in any way, shape, or form. Some of you have heard that Sunday school classes can become churches within churches, and so can 242 home groups. But uh, these folks that aren't referred to didn't even go to church at all. They just simply went to Sunday school, heard what they had to do to have a better family, and then they would leave as the word was taught expositionally. Uh, something also that was noted in this uh, class was that uh, most of the people, the majority of the people, possessed no evangelistic burden whatsoever, had no desire to see the lost saved in any form, way, shape, or form. And thirdly, these people possessed very little or no appetite for any of the great truths of God uh, that didn't directly intersect with the concern of the family. And so we all know that family is good, family is great. Uh, you cannot get away from that in the scriptures, nor do we want to get away from that within the scriptures. Uh, this Sunday school class that Art talked about had high, high numbers and was growing, growing, growing. But there was a lack of spiritual life within the class. He said, you know, I feel lonely even though I'm surrounded by people. And one day, the story goes on that he went to an Oakland A's baseball game and just to kind of have some fun and relax. And he sat by uh, Dr. Schaefer at this baseball game, and he was just kind of sharing some of his concerns about this Sunday school class and some of the lack of life and health within it. And Dr. Schaefer said to him, Art, never forget that a healthy Christian family, just like a healthy Christian church, has been designed to exist for a goal outside itself. I want to say that again, that's so important for us as Bible-believing Christians, that a healthy Christian family, just like a healthy Christian church, 
has been designed to exist for a goal outside of itself. And so often we within the church as well-meaning groups of people, you know, regenerate, born again, wanting to please the Lord, we can suffer from a form of myopia. We have the distant object of our chief end appearing blurred. We'll get in tonight and kind of recome from uh, last week what that chief end of man is. We see from scripture in the beginning of Luke how Zechariah and Elizabeth had their distant object of their chief end blurred as well. You guys know that Zechariah and Elizabeth were one of two couples who had a special announcement by the angel Gabriel regarding the miraculous birth of their son, who was to be John the Baptist. Now imagine being Elizabeth, how 10 years goes by, 20 years go by, 30 years go by. You're the age where you should be a grandma, and barrenness, barrenness had led to reproach and shame uh, from your community, from your synagogue. And some of you, perhaps, if you're single still, or if you're, you haven't had children yet, uh, you've been experiencing some of that, you know, being exiled within the community. Or every time you go to a wedding, the questions pop up. And when are you going to find yourself a nice man? Or when are you going to get a bun in the oven? And the question goes on and on uh, for many insensitive people. And as they dealt with these questions, both Zechariah and Elizabeth had to ask themselves, you know, did we do something wrong to deserve this barrenness? Is there some sort of unconfessed sin in our life? And that's why we haven't had a child. You know, Zechariah was a religious leader. He was a priest. How can he lead within his community when uh, his wife can't have uh, a child. Perhaps this has caused shame publicly and undermined his position and his authority in the temple. Well, the sad truth is with Zechariah, this pain and this sorrow of, of having a barren wife had turned to shame and disgrace. He had led on to what we do too. We, had, we hold on to this cultural idol of family. This idol had filled his heart so much, he was still focused on it, even though he was to be a grandpa, and he probably should have dealt with it by this point. He was still holding on to it, so that even when the angel Gabriel came and tried to give him the truth of God's promise, Zechariah couldn't, no, wouldn't believe. His eyes were focused too much on the hope to have a son someday, even though he knew it was possible, his God was the God of Abraham who brought life to Sarah's dead womb. And so even when Gabriel came, the good news of a coming son did nothing to inspire joy, but rather he had unbelief. He basically said, it's too late. We're too old. And the angel said, well, you're going to have a son, so deal with it. And in fact, because you don't believe, your mouth is going to be shut and you're not going to be able to talk until this baby is born. And so Zechariah became a mute uh, for about nine months. Zechariah and Elizabeth became so focused on the family, they'd failed to recognize the family in its broader and theological context. And that is what we aim to do in this gospel family series. You know, we won't just focus on the family. We want to focus on the family in light of the gospel. 
And we're going to see that it's so much more deep and so much more broad and so much more meaningful than some of us have ever even imagined in our entire life. God give us the brain cells to get it. And the heart that would repent where we're a little bit stubborn and want to hold to our worldview. And so we can overcorrect in our society. First of all, a society can value personal independence. You know, some people, they want to be single. They don't want to have kids. They want to live for themselves. They want to isolate themselves. They don't want to be a part of community. And of course, this is the left field. This is one absolute extreme. You know, being isolated, use your resources on yourself and, uh, and just ultimately live in independence. But on the other end of the spectrum, there's another wrong view where society can make family the most important thing. And many of us have done that. Family can become an idol, something that ultimately defines us, our wife or our husband, our kids and our accomplishment as a family. Sometimes it goes so far even to regard people that haven't married as being somehow subhuman, not quite up to par. They must have done something wrong to upset God. And so as we want to address the disintegration of the family, the church has swung the pendulum so far in this other direction that now all of life and church and Christianity has become subservient to the family rather than the family becoming a servant of God, God's glory, God's worship, God's mission. In this case, it's that if we're not belonging to a family, by the end of the day, something's wrong with us. If the church isn't teaching on the subject, or if the church isn't all about the subject, if the church doesn't have on its website that we're a family church, or we're a church for families, after all, there's nothing more exclusive than families, then something's wrong. And we often have fallen into that trap. Now, we would all agree that God does place great importance on the family. Great importance on the home, great importance on the marriage, great importance on raising children and being children. This is all true, but these things, the family life is never the end in and of itself. Hopefully you're getting the springboarding off of last week's study on the image of God equals we reflect the glory of God. We've been made as a family, or our family has been made as a means to a far greater end. The worship and honor and glorifying of God. As Artaxerxia said, on my money, this is the dilemma that we have as Christians. The failure to think as our families, of our families as conduits, not cul-de-sacs. One poet humorously said, it's us for no more, shut the door. In 1847, J.W. Alexander said, the, uh, the Christian family exists not for itself. The Christian family is never to exist for itself. It exists for a purpose far outside of itself. 
This last Sunday, we studied in the book of Romans, chapter 10, how the gospel subverts worldviews and then replaces them with the truth. The gospel confronts worldviews and puts a true and better view in its place. And so tonight, the gospel confronts. The gospel gets up in our face, toe-to-toe, nose-to-nose with what our worldview has become as the church. And it subverts the authority of the incorrect worldview that family and marriage is the ultimate end. Family and marriage is not the ultimate end. We've been trying and attempting to answer three big questions in the last couple weeks. We got to one so far. Actually, we've gotten to two. Sorry. Uh, this is part of it. Uh, the first one is the question being, what defines the high worth of the family? What defines the high worth of the family? In the very first week, week one, we looked at that it's the sovereign creation of the Lord. The sovereign creation of the Lord. Marriage isn't ours to do with it as we please, but because God created it, He's the author and the finisher and the designator of what marriage looks like, okay? Uh, And then last week, we looked at what defines the dignity or the high worth of the family as that it exists for God and for his glory. And we continue on in that vein tonight. And then next week, Lord willing, we're going to begin just doing an overview of Ephesians 5, specifically starting earlier than we normally do. And we're going to emphasize how marriage can go back nearly to its original state by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're going to look at that next week. But we continue in this kind of part two, how marriage and family exist for God, for his glory, not our self-fulfillment. At a Christian couples conference, there was a man well-loved by the Christian community who stood up and shouted out, brothers and sisters, this is his first teaching, brothers and sisters, we have a new idol in the church of Jesus Christ. We are in grave danger of becoming Protestant moralists, worshiping at the shrine of the family. He had the courage to say what many of us refuse to say, let alone believe that the family was never designed or designated to be the end in and of itself. This pastor then went on to quote this text, 1 Corinthians 7, 29. You might want to flip there just to make sure it's an actual verse in the Bible, because here's what it says. But this I say, brethren, the time is short So that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Did you catch it? No one's gasped. Okay. The time is short so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. You guys are saying, is that in the Bible? I hear pages flipping. Carrie doesn't believe it. I'm just picking on you, Carrie. You know, we failed to notice that verse, even in our fasting and praying through the New Testament back in March. We all missed it as a church. You know, very few of us have the courage to confront idolatry the way this man at this conference did. By spending time camped out in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 29, a whole chapter dealing with 
marriage. Now this verse is absent and probably opposed to many of the books within the Christian bookstores today. Now something to note about that verse is that Paul and nobody else is saying that we should neglect family responsibilities or neglect our marriages or to neglect relationships with our wives. Don't go there and don't say that I'm going there. It would be going against Paul's apostolic authority and much of other things that he wrote in the New Testament, in his teaching. But what Paul is saying is don't live your Christian life as if that is all there is. Don't live your Christian life as if your wife is all that there is. If your wife is your chief end. As though our relationships and our experiences and our date nights are the ultimate end. Our relationships should be lived out in the knowledge that this world and all of its forms are passing away. And to know that Jesus said in the, another, in the next life, in the eternity, we won't be married. Not only is it not the ultimate end, our marriages are just a tiny little dot on the grand spectrum of eternity. But rather, we'll be like the angels who are neither married nor given in marriage. And all of our energies will be in worshiping God and giving him glory. And the energy that even we would have for our own wives in eternity are going towards the throne of God. And we're shouting out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And we'll be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will be married to our groom, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for the bride. All of our energies and all of our passions will be going towards this true and better groom who gave us marriage as a portrait, as a picture of the greatest marriage, the marriage between Jesus and the church. And so we need to hear this principle often, even though it's vulnerable to exploitation, even though if there were more people in here and maybe the people that are in here now, would twist it, make it seem like Rory is saying, neglect your family, kick the wife out and become a missionary to another country. Not exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> Donald Blesch said, the proof of Christian marriage is the willingness of the two partners to sacrifice the marriage for the sake of the kingdom of God. You know, Paul the Apostle was believed to have been married. He was part of the Sanhedrin. Nearly everybody that was part of the Sanhedrin was married. And whenever he writes on marriage, especially the passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about, you know, it's better if you're single to remain single, even as I am. You know, if a single man isn't married, he's able to give himself solely to the Lord. But when he gets married, he gives his passions and his energies to his wife. He kind of shares those. And he kind of writes with just almost a hurt heart. Most scholars believe that his wife left him after he became a zealous Christian, starting to follow the Jesus of Nazareth, the very man that he was persecuting the disciples. So the proof of Christian marriage is the willingness of two partners to sacrifice the marriage for the sake of the kingdom. Now, again, 
Donald Blesh, nor Paul the Apostle, nor Rory Rogers. We are not promoting that in the name of the ministry. We neglect and abandon family responsibilities. Don't say I'm going there, Paul didn't go there, and Jesus wouldn't go there. What we are saying is that if the predominant occupation of our lives is our families and that everything else, including the advancement of the kingdom of God, the mission of Jesus Christ, is subservient to our home life, then we've elevated our families to a position that God never intended them to be in the creation. We've missed the mark, we've sinned, and we've fallen short of the glory of God. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27 and 28, right after Jesus speaks to the rich young ruler, Peter answers and says to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or Children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a father a hundredfold, a mother a hundredfold, a wife a hundredfold. Don't get weird about it. A lands a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many will, who are last will be first and the first last. Now, there are some who, in reading that, in recognizing the cost that it beckons, we try to water it down, wash it out, skip over it in our daily devotional life. Some who read it, if they didn't know who Jesus was and what he was about, they'd conclude that this was a sinful saying. That Jesus has gone off his rocker this time for sure. And that's because of the image that we have in our mind is one that has been shaped by worldviews, worldly psychology, sociologists, and not by the inspired word of God that is profitable for doctrine, for correction, for reproof, and for training, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped, ready for every good work. We've gotten our worldviews from Little House on the Prairie and Leave It to Beaver and Home Improvement, thanks to Tim Allen. He did a great job leading his family. And our hearts, as you've all heard it said here at this church, are idol-making factories. We make great gifts from God, the ultimate in our lives. We replace God with our affections. Everything good that he's given us. Our home, the physical structure that we dwell in, can so quickly become an idol and compete for our affection. Our wife, our kids, our pets, our vacation, our form of recreation, our forms of hobbies. John Calvin coined that term, that the human heart is an idol factory. You know, we pump out idols for our business, and business has been so good within the church. 
Tim Keller asks, what's an idol? Is it, any, uh, it is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you, seek to, uh, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Husbands, you do this with your wife. Wives, you do this with your husband. Parents, you do this with your children. Children, you do this with your parents. And we identify these idols by, as Keller says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you what that is right now, what that idol is, and I've got them. We sang a song tonight, I don't even remember what it was, I think it was the King of, Jesus King of Glory or whatever, and it said, who is this that every time I read the word, I hear him whispering and convicting my heart? And he does it, doesn't he? At a, ma- at a marriage and family series, he comes in by the Holy Spirit and he convicts us, of, convicts us of idol worship on the same level as Israel worshiping the Chamashes and the Ashtoreths, offering up human sacrifice and sexual immorality to these fake gods. We do the same exact thing with the people, places, and things that we esteem higher than God, worth more affection than God, worth more financial investment than God, worth more dreaming about than God. And we can repent by his grace tonight of these idols. There was a Nigerian with the name Antieth. He came to train in the States for seminary so that he could go back to Nigeria and preach the gospel. He left his family for four years didn't see his wife and didn't see his kid. And many within the church today would say that Antioch was in sin. Antioch had been serving the purposes of God and the furtherance of his kingdom more than at the moment it would appear than his own wife and children. And so what do we do with the passages that say that the gospel will bring separation of the family? As Jesus says, don't think that I came to bring peace, but I came to bring a a sword. I've come and I'm going to mother against daughter-in-law. There's going to be division as if there wasn't any already. Father against son. Friend against brother. We're going to turn on each other. Because the gospel is so confrontational and so controversial. We look at Luke 14, verse 26, where Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Later on in the same passage, uh, chapter, verse 33, Jesus says, So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. As Stephen Um said, what Jesus is calling us to is ultimate allegiance. He is essentially saying, to be my disciple, you must give me preeminence over and sometimes against all other relationships. 
In other words, our lives should be so submitted to Christ, Um continues, that when we put our allegiance to him side by side with other allegiances, the difference is so great that it could be described as black and white, or technically, as Jesus put it, love and hate. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, we see James and John mending their nets with their dad, Zebedee. And Jesus walks by and calls them, in a sense, to be menders of men. And what do they do? Immediately drop their nets and follow him. Now, in Western culture, that's not a big deal. Often we leave mom and dad to go out, uh, you know, and to get a career and to get an education. And we kind of venture off away from the family business. That's the majority of us uh, in our Western culture. But you've got to understand that is not Eastern culture. It was a big, big, big deal for the sons of thunder to drop the family nets and to follow a no-name preacher from Galilee. Why did they do it? Because they loved Jesus and they counted the cost of being a disciple. Our society, our local communities, and sometimes even our families demand that we give our primary devotion to them But the call to discipleship, it always includes a drastic reordering of our priorities and the things that are the most precious to us. And sometimes a full-on departure from those things that refuse to come under the rule of our new master. As a fifth grader, I was forced to read The Pilgrim's Progress. I think it was a little bit over my head. (laughs) And so I've tried starting it again um, on my Kindle, and uh, it's gone a little bit better. I just have gotten distracted. Anyways, with Pilgrim's Progress, very at the beginning, the lad named Christian is invited to the celestial city, and as he goes, inviting people to go to the incestual, in, not incestual. <laughs> I'm glad nobody went with him there. Celestial city. <laughs> I apologize. Nobody will go with him. Not his wife, not his kids. But he decides to go anyways. And as he walks away, his wife screams and yells for him to come back. But Christian, the pilgrim, covers his ears and shouts out, Life, life, eternal life. The call to discipleship is that fundamental, foundational redirection of our human existence. There is a reorientation, a repenting, an all-encompassing turning about of our lives in order that our affections might be placed primarily upon Christ. And when this gets confused, the fallout is disastrous. Marriages get in disarray because all they cared about was family. They put their hope, their trust, their joy, their affection, their attention, all their resources into something that was never designed to fulfill their deepest and most ultimate need. What do we do with scriptures that show us, in the words of Garth Brooks, 
that blood is thicker than water, but love is thicker than blood. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Jesus' brothers and mother came to him, and standing outside, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around Jesus, and they said, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered and said, Who is my mother? He's saying that about the Virgin Mary, y'all. You don't just do that. Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those that sat by him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers! Exclamation point. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Have you been confronted yet by the truth of God's word? That the mission of God seems to be a threat to family time? And so often in Christian homes, the mission of God is an enemy to be avoided? Christians become selfish and self-consumed where the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and serving her is a threat to the home. Bar the windows and board up the doors. Husbands and wives think that their spouse exists as the ultimate source of fulfillment. They think that is why I got married, so that you, my wife, can spend the rest of your life making me happy. That's what marriage has become. Parents think that their kids exist for their own satisfaction, rather than kids being a gift to further the kingdom of God. One man said, families are collapsing under their own weight, failing Not because people expect too little for marriages, but because they expect too much. Paul Tripp speaks a lot in his book, by the way, uh, a book available for checkout out there for you tonight, um, called What'd You Expect? And he just speaks of these high, unrealistic expectations that we put on our spouse, spouse from day one. Artaxerxes says marriage feeds off experience outside of marriage. It cannot stand alone. It needs the network of more important commitments to make the commitment of exclusive lifelong fidelity work. Donald Blesch also said, both husband and wife are servants of Christ and it is to him and not to each other that they must look to the fulfillment of their hopes and dreams. We should not marry for love But for the sake of kingdom service, at the same time, we should marry with love. Don't marry for your wife, but for this opportunity to reflect the glory of God and be part of his mission. Marriage is part of God's mission. It's part of his design in that sense. When we marry for love, We say to our spouse, your job is to satisfy me for the rest of your life. When we roam around, frothy at the mouth, looking for the perfect spouse, we are going to be disappointed because there is no perfect spouse except for Jesus. He's the perfect groom. 
We remember from last week the purpose of us as creatures. The purpose of every created thing, actually. Why did God, who was content, completely happy, completely perfect, having complete fellowship within the Trinity, create the universe, the angelic realm, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land, man, woman, and marriage? What was his ultimate purpose? You guys should know it. To glorify God. And whenever any one of these created things fails to glorify God, it falls short. It's sin. To do an even more thorough depth or further plunge into what this is, Romans 11.36 says that it's for of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be the glory forever. Colossians says, speaking of Jesus creating everything, he says that these things were created through him and for him. That he's before all things and in him all things consist. He's the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence, the first place, the place of glory. Isaiah 43 speaks of the wild animals glorify God. In Luke chapter 1, the angels sing worship to God, glory to God in the highest. The nation of Israel is to bring glory to God as a nation. Jeremiah 13, 11, Jeremiah says, As the sash clings to the waist of a man, so God has caused the whole house of Israel and Judah to cling to me, that they become my people for renown, for praise, for glory. Why'd God make the church? To make us a storage place for safekeeping of his glory. And that is the objective at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. We want to be a safe place for the glory of God, but we don't want to hide it under a bushel. We want to let it shine in this community. We want to glorify God, as 1 Corinthians 6 says, in our body and in our spirit, which are God. We echo Philippians 4.20 as a church. Unto God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We, doxology, we have doxology with Jude. In Jude verse 24 and 25. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. As John 17, 4, Jesus, while he's still in the flesh on the earth, he's praying to God and he says, I've glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you've given me to do. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, how? How do we glorify God? We live up to our creative purpose, created purpose, in being made in the image of God. In so doing, we bring him glory. We don't add to God's glory. That's kind of like trying to make water wet. But what we do is we magnify God's glory. And we declare God's glory. And we can't help but speak of God's glory to our friends and make other people aware of it. 
Rory, what in the world does this have to do with my family? It has everything to do with your family. It is for this purpose that your family exists. There's huge implications of this. We glorify God in our marriage by carrying out our marriage duties in such a way that reflect the greater and more glorious marriage of Jesus Christ, the groom, with his bride, the church. And so wives submit to their husbands as they do to the Lord to be a reflection. And husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. They wash her with the water of the word. They love her as they love themselves to reflect the glory of God. Jeff Bromley said, as God made man in his own image, so he made marriage in the image of his own eternal marriage with his people. This is not sociological, it's doxological. Doxological, it's for praise. It exists ultimately for him, not for us. Not for self-enhancement, self-fulfillment, self-absorption, but marriage and family represents something greater than us and more glorious than us. Within the family, we can pastor our wives' husbands, And parents can pastor their children and how to pray and how to serve, how to give, how to love non-Christians rather than sealing off the house so non-Christians can come inside. We no longer teach our daughters that the most important thing is to find a man. That is not the chief end of man. We don't lead our sons to find an occupation or a career that will give him utmost financial stability and make him a famous figure in society. Because that is not man's chief end. We train our children to glorify their creator and to reflect him in every aspect of their lives. We pray for our kids and family to be spent for the gospel. We say for our children, for our sisters. You know, I have a a sister who's 33 years old and single. And there's times when just it creeps in and we just, as a family, we get frustrated. But never once do we say, Lord, your will be done, not ours. Lord, this is in your hands. Lord, is she just living for your glory as a single, beautiful young woman? Yes, she is. And that is more than enough. In fact, that is better, if that's your will, than for her to have married just the first guy that came along. That's in God's hand. That someone in our family would have children. We could say, fine, if that's God's will. If that's God's work. It's difficult to make family the most central thing in Christianity when two of the most prominent figures in Christianity were single and didn't have kids. Jesus and Paul. And yet we've made it the end. But that we'd be like Hannah in the book of 1 Samuel, who was so grieved that she didn't have a child, she was barren, and she wept and she fasted in such a way that that, uh, Eli thought she was drunk up there at at the temple, you know, at the tabernacle. 
But the Lord heard her cry and gave her a son, made that barren womb come forth with life. And she had Samuel. And what did she do with Samuel? She locked him in the cellar and fed him by a pan, slid underneath the door. No, she said, God, my son is not for me. He's for you. And so she takes him back up the mountain to Shiloh, to the tabernacle, and her son becomes a mini priest. She makes him a mini ephod, a little robe that he could go around and serve Jesus, you know, serve the Lord. And she would come back, I think it was like once a year or something, and bring provisions. But she recognized, whose kid is it? It's God's for his glory. Whose marriage is this? Whose family is it? It's for God's glory. Do you remember what happened when Israel got all about family? Got all about being Israelites? Got all about, it's me, me! They got off God's track for them to be missionaries to the uttermost parts of the world. They became so self-centered, so hypocritical, that they missed the Messiah. And now the gospel's gone forth to the Gentiles to provoke Israelites to jealousy. Man, I love my family, just like you guys love yours. I love my wife. I just spent two days in Bend with her. We got a hotel room. We hung out by the pool. We celebrated our 10-year anniversary, did weddings on our actual 10-year anniversaries, and you know we celebrated it Sunday after church, and I just love my bride. I love Russell. You guys hear me talk about him all the time. I love Lainey. But Russell and Lainey and Lindsay are not the end. They are not the chief end of Rory. But they are gifts from God that he's given me that I can glorify his name, that I can train them up and teach them what it means to be evangelical. I can teach them what it means to serve, not neglect them, but bring them alongside of me in the joys of Christian service and ministry, in the joys of worship. We as Christians, we've made God be servants to our families. And God must never become subservient to our families. But we must always serve God and his kingdom. And I believe with all my heart, this will not hurt our families. But it'll bring health exponentially. Our family will diminish when it's in idol worship. But as we repent of idol worship, we're provided with a motivation to live out the responsibilities that God has given us. We're provided the power to live out the responsibilities. As we look at next week, that the power comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Without that, you cannot be a wife, you cannot be a husband, you cannot be a kid, employee, employer, or parent in the way that God has intended. Zechariah is a warning to us not to make family the ultimate thing he turned it into a false God and he left no room for truth or for the real God. And he was disciplined for it by the Lord. I want to close and uh, Tammy, you can come on up. I want to close with uh, a poem that Pastor John Piper wrote for his son on his wedding day. 
And uh, this was back in 1995. And uh, it's a long poem. I'm only going to read half of it. But uh, halfway through this poem, Piper says, Yes, love her. Love her more than life. Oh, love the woman called your wife. Go love her as your earthly best. Beyond this venture not, but lest. Your love become a fool's facade. Be sure to love her less than God. It is not wise or kind to call an idol by sweet names and fall as in humanity before a likeness of your God. Adore above your best beloved on earth, the God alone who gives her worth. And she will know in second place that your great love is also grace and that your high affections now are flowing freely from a vow. Beneath these promises first made to you by God, nor will they fade. For being rooted by the stream of heaven's joys which you esteem and cherish more than breath in life, that you may give it to your wife. The greatest gift you give your wife is loving God above her life. And thus I bid you now to bless Go love her more by loving less. And so tonight as we close, let's repent of our idol worship. Not at all hearing the call to neglect our family or to abandon our family, but that our love for Jesus would be so astronomical that when you hold your family up to him, it seems like hate. It seems like black against white. Next week, we look at the Christian family's life as a work of the Spirit. As a work of the Spirit. Let's close. Lord Jesus, we repent right now. Like Daniel repented for his own sins and also for the sins of his nation. Lord, we repent. And Lord, we recognize this message it could get us down to 10 people in our church. It's not popular. It's misunderstood. But God, we love truth more than man. And Lord, we repent of making our wives and our kids, our families, the chief end of man. We've made you, the God of the universe, bow your knee to our family's hopes and dreams when it ought to have been our family's hopes and dreams bowing their knee to your call, to your kingdom, to your mission for our life. I know that I've done that, Lord. Lord, may we find joy May we find rest. May we find refreshment. May we find fulfillment from the throne of grace. And Lord, would that provide the means to be husbands and wives and kids and parents and all the other relationships that you call us to be. 
We repent for our nation. We repent for the quote unquote evangelical church. We repent for our church. Lord, we know that it's just a truth. There's, there's a cancer in our church of self and it's there. And Lord God, I see it so often in me. We see it, we confess it, and by your spirit, Lord, sanctify us from it. Heal our homes, God. Heal us from self-focus. Just for your great name. Let's stand, let's repent. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Thanks again for listening and God bless.